This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, they say that uh, one of the biggest problems uh, that humans have is the fact that we have expectations, right? If you expect certain things, you, you're going to go looking for those things. And um, so today I wanted to spend a little bit of time seeing if we can't help each other to manage our expectations a little bit more. Now, um, when people come in and see me, a lot of times they, they, there's this gap, I call it, uh, the gap of pain where somebody wants one thing and they keep getting another thing. And the gap between what they want and what they get that gap, if it's a big gap, causes big pain. If it's a little gap, causes little pain. But we always have a choice when we have um, either lower expect or uh, you know mismanaged expectations, or our expectations are too high of the people around us. We have two choices usually, and and one choice is to to pick up our game. We and which is what most of us try to do is get the other person to just pick up their game, to do more, to get closer to the expectation that I have. Another choice is that we actually could just lower our expectation to what is actually being delivered, right? And and just, you know, just accept what the person around you is giving you instead of keeping your goal of trying to get them to pick up their game. Let's just accept that they, they can only do it this way. And, um, you know, that actually ticks a lot of people off as I talk to them because I'm like, why don't we just, why don't we just, you know, like, here's an example. Um, Let's say a husband used to have a great job, and um, as he would work and make money for the family, let's say he was making $100,000, and uh, he, he, he really did a great job, made $100,000, and then all of a sudden lost that job, and the expectation is that he should go out and be able to make $100,000. So I had a client once whose husband wasn't making a hundred grand; He was making about $30,000 after he was making $100,000. And um, for 15 to 16, 17 years, all he was making was thirty to $40,000. And the spouse was very upset about it because he really could do so much more. He really, he really could. And uh, she kept trying every way she could to get him to go out and get a better job and do a, you know, finish his resume and finish that one last class so he could get a degree and then make his hundred grand and and she finally came in um, and saw me and, and basically said, what am I supposed to do? He just – he just he's too lazy. He won't go be the $100,000 guy that I thought he was. And I asked, well, is, is it possible that he really isn't a $100,000 earner? Is it possible that what he really is is a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 earner? Is that possible? And she's like, well, no. He made $100,000. And I'm like, how much – how many – how long did he make $100,000? And she said, well, two years. Well, and, and how long has he made $35,000? And she's like, well, 15 or 16, 17 years. And I'm like, well, it sounds like to me that really he's just more of a $35,000 man, isn't he? If we're just going by the data. Well, you want me to say that? Yeah, I mean, but he has the ability. We know he does. And I'm like, well, I mean, we've, we've, we saw a moment of it. Maybe he was just really lucky those years. You know, maybe he just got into the perfect job and it was just, no, he could do better. And I'm like, but in the end, just so you notice, 
it's it's not about what he's earning. There's a reason you're frustrated that he's not earning more, right? Well, yeah, because now it means that I have to earn more and I have to and I don't want all the pressure and now I have to make all the bills work and I'm like, so why don't you just accept that he's a $40,000 man and and figure out what we can do to make it easier for you to make money, which is in your ability to control it or your your ability to manage the bills better. Anyway, she went back, talked to her husband and, and apologized to him. And she said, I'm so sorry that I'd kept expecting you to earn more and more money. And the reality is, is it's I'm just frustrated because I'm not able to be the kind of person I want to be and it has stress on me and I'm sorry. I just need to accept that you're a $35,000 a year income and and start figuring out ways so that we can start living that way. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And then he's like, hold it. What do you mean I can't earn 100000 She's like, well, no. I mean, the data just shows you can't earn it. And of course I can earn it. Weirdest thing in the world. Within two years, the man's now making eighty grand. And what changed it? It's simply she started to change, realizing instead of getting her joy and her happiness from someone else making some change, and then instead of just instead of just hoping for something that wasn't ever going to change, she just accepted what was happening, actually accepted the gift she was getting, which was thirty five grand. And it changed something. It changed something in her and changed something in him. She actually started being appreciative of what she had, and he actually started giving more. Change. It happens when we look at our expectations. So instead of trying to expect the entire world to change for you, what if you could just get to a point where you accepted what you could do and and just put it back in your circle of influence and managed your expectations I promise just that simple change of what you can do, focusing on what you can influence and being appreciative of what you do have, just those few little changes will go a very long way to creating a healthier, happier life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We've got to learn to recharge. And really what we might need to learn to do is turn stuff off. We lack the discipline, I truly believe, to to maybe live in this tech culture. Um, we, You know, everyone keeps spouting the idea that, uh, yeah, you have the control. Not really. Not really. We, You've got to have the character, the ability to actually go turn this stuff off and start leading your life to a completely different level. Um, the, the, the validation of this is coming out of Tokyo. Um, listen to this. A young journalist's grueling work schedule, including a single month working 159 hours of overtime, and just two days off the entire month, apparently triggered heart failure that killed her at the age of 31, according to Japanese labor regulators. Authorities officially attributed Miwasato's death to karoshi, the Japanese word for a death due to overwork, according to information released this week. And, uh, and she, by the way, worked for a public broadcaster. So that's kind of scary um, if you're if you're a public broadcasting employee. Sato, a political reporter, had been covering elections for Tokyo's government and the national parliament in the months leading up to her death in 2013. She died three days after the election for Japan's upper house. 
The determination that Sato's death was caused by overworking has brought renewed scrutiny to the work culture in Japan, where hundreds, if not thousands of people are believed to be working themselves to death every year. One official with the public broadcaster told reporters her death was indicative of a problem of our organization as a whole, including the labor system and how elections are covered. The country classified 189 deaths from overwork in 2015. 93 suicides and 96 heart attacks, strokes, and other illnesses related to overwork. The woman, by the way, 31 years old. 31 years old. In addition to long hours, vacation days routinely go unused. On average, employees used less than half of their leave time in 2015, about nine days a year. Are you out there taking all of your leave time? Are you taking your vacation or are you saving it? Oh, I'm just saving it, Matt, for a rainy day. Like when I have my bypass surgery, I want to have a lot of vacation days to take. Well, maybe if we all would go take our vacation and actually make it a vacation, maybe what would happen is you wouldn't need the bypass. Hmm? Maybe. And I don't want to be a jerk about it, but there is a point where – we got to learn, folks, and we've got to learn how to live a life and how to have a life. Um, it's not going to just happen for you. And you may be noticing in your life that you keep thinking that someday, just someday down the road, you're going to finally be caught up on your bills, be happy again. You'll, I mean, once, once you do this next thing, you know, once you get the next promotion, you're finally going to be happy. And what we may be realizing is there's no such thing. Happiness isn't around the corner, right? Happiness uh, is is there now. In fact, the book The Happiness Advantage that our last guest uh, was basing some of her work on is telling us that happiness is not something that we eventually reach. It's something we've got to find now. And when you can find happiness today in your life, that is what actually produces the results. It's not that getting results makes you happy. It's being happy that helps you make results and get results in your life. So we've got to re we've got to re um, reevaluate and re kind of organize our priorities about these things. It, it's not going away, folks. And the game has changed quite a bit. And I don't. It's not even. I'm, you don't need to be anti technology. You do need to be pro living your life, taking your life back. Otherwise, you will just naturally go to whatever system is set up. And in Japan, the way they're working each other with this assumption about what good work is, 105 hours of overtime a month, it's too much. It's too much. And it's I guaranteed, uh, according to the researchers, it's not actually producing better work on your part. You are not a better employee by giving 105 hours of overtime. You're just not. You're not producing better work. I'll, I would put you head-to-head with anybody that is sitting there working an effective, uh, you know, 50 hours a week maybe, 40 hours a week, and um, I think I think they can – they'll outperform you. It, you can't burn the candle at both ends without it uh, eventually burning out. Uh, interesting stuff, folks. And again, it's your life. It's my life. It's our choices. Yeah, well, I'm trapped in this crazy thing we call life. You're not trapped. You're at the driver's seat here, right? You're the one in charge. 
There's power when you finally put yourself in the driver's seat instead of being a victim of every other system in the world. Just a little insight from your coach, your guide on the side. That's why we do the program to help give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. is it that as our access to information dramatically increases, our views appear to become more narrow? Well, uh, here to talk about it is Ori Brofman. He's the author of the book Radical Inclusion, What the Post-9-11 World Should Have Taught Us About Leadership. And he's going to be joining us uh, to talk about his book. Uh, Ori is a New York Times bestselling office, uh, uh, author, and he specializes in organizational culture, employee engagement, business transformation, uh, leadership and emerging technologies. Ori, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Good to have you. Thanks to thanks because it's never easy, I think, to get up as early as we are, Ori. Um, <laughs> but here's the question for you: Is we do live in a time with so much information, with so much data, but it seems like more and more we're just becoming more narrowly focused as humans. Right. What's happening uh, from a technological perspective is we're getting so much more information, and it's so much easier for any uh, single person to produce information that in, the content, in that process, without intending to, we sometimes get the wrong information. Um, and I have uh, this simple common, uh, uh, mind exercise. Yeah. Let's say, um, can I convince you that there is a fire in Chicago right now? And if I know which social media outlets you go to, I can probably show you that there's a fire. Um, but then if I go to your friend and kind of convince them that there isn't a fire in Chicago, if I know their social media huh. patterns, I can probably show them Chicago being totally fine. And you ask yourself, well, which information is more accurate? Is Chicago on fire or is it not? And in order to actually verify the information, in order to actually have, uh, to be able to tell what's really going on, you basically need someone who you trust in Chicago, and you call them up and said, hey, is, is, is everything okay in Chicago or not? And you think about that in terms of the information that we consume, we need inclusion in order to make better decisions. Mm. And, and Yeah, and, and I guess we need inclusion and and distribution, don't we? I guess I need to... I need to make sure that I have people in Chicago. Absolutely. And we need uh, a diversity of people around us. And what we mean by diversity is not just uh, racial diversity or gender diversity, also diversity of thought. So I teach at UC Berkeley. Um, and my co-author is uh, Martin Dempsey, who was the head of the military. And he said, like, how would someone like, <laughs> mm. how, how would these two guys start writing a book together? And we recognize that for our country, for us to have good information, for us to um, bring back the, the values that really make our country what it is, we need to reach uh, across to people who we don't normally interact with. Yeah. that And it, I mean, again, it makes so much sense. And we see how... 
how easily uh, swayed you know social media can or what social media can do to sway us. Talk about overall leadership because it seems like we're in a weird place with our leaders as well where they, they may not necessarily know how to lead in this new age. Yeah, we're living in a very different time where um, we're moving away from um, the age of debates and debates are either uh, right or wrong. And because of social media, we're moving more towards uh, competing narratives where a narrative is either interesting or boring. And you can apply that to the national stage. Um, In order to be effective, to effectively get information and in order to effectively disseminate our narrative, uh, we need to think about inclusion not just as a nice-to-have, but as a strategic imperative. Interesting. And inclusion, you mean inclusion of of multiple thought, multiple, uh, I mean, as many different points of view and diversity as you can get. Exactly. And we tend to, in organizations and even in families, think about inclusion as kind of a uh, uh, almost like detention, right? Like, yeah. oh, you have to invite that uncle to uh, dinner or, or at work. You have to attend some workshop about diversity. And we look at it differently. We look at inclusion as really uh, creating a sense of belonging. And how do we have people around us have a sense of belonging in our shared narrative? How do we really make it matter? Uh, The instincts that we talk about in the book are uh, first, listen, uh, and listen effectively. Second, amplify. How do you amplify the voices that are saying reasonable things that, that, that need to be heard? And the third, of course, is include. Hmm. Listen, amplify, and include. Uh, one of the interesting things, too, about, I think, the book is the title, because you bring up the post-9-11 world and, and the idea that what it should have taught us was radical inclusion. What, what was it about post-9-11 that was so core to the need for radical inclusion? Um, so before 9-11, uh, the kind of terrorist groups and things like that were tended to be more uh, hierarchical, that is, top-down organizations. And 9-11 all of a sudden showed the huge power of decentralization. Uh, Al-Qaeda and all those uh, kind of organizations. Um, and since then, we've seen decentralization uh, have a huge effect on the market, uh, everything from Wikipedia to uh, things that we hear about blockchain, etc. And what we argue is there's, there's now been another shift. And the shift has been that oftentimes the videos are the organization. And we don't mean that in a kind of flippant way. We mean that in a literal way. Um, so you think about uh, you know, great uh, uh, things that have taken off uh, on videos like the ice bucket challenge mm. or things like that. Um, but there's also been some pretty harmful uh, videos um, uh, terrorist videos and uh, uh, videos about coal rolling, all all sorts of things like that. And um, oftentimes what happens is that the videos uh, want to, we need to kind of think about them as almost living organisms. And living organisms want to do two things. They want to eat and they want to reproduce. And the way that videos eat is they get uh, viewership. The way that we produce is they uh, attract derivative content. 
So you all of a sudden have someone doing an action on a video, and then people uh, essentially do copycat uh, videos, hmm. and that starts getting its own momentum. And all of a sudden, uh, we're living in a world where the videos are essentially uh, kind of in charge, and it's kind of flipping things over. And the reason we need inclusion is um, we need to have the rational voices uh, be dictating the narrative. Yeah. In fact, uh, boy, you see that a lot. Uh, poor United Airlines in a way where they they had a video come out of the police removing someone from one of their airplanes and it, it impacted their financial bottom line. It impacted, you know, their public relations. Um, plus, they've had many other uh, kind of PR problems since then. But how do leaders handle it? Because they, in a way, with all the video and all of these other kind of derivative uses of of video, um, leaders are, are losing control, and it's got to be making them afraid. And then when they get afraid, they probably act opposite of what you'd suggest. Uh, uh, absolutely. So, right, Let, let's imagine 20 years ago that we'd go to a United executive and say, you know what, this thing called YouTube might really be affecting your <laughs> company. Uh, it's the last thing that they would have thought. Uh, something's happening with uh, Toyota. Uh, people in Priuses, uh, there's one video of a woman in a Prius uh, uh, shouting profanities at a family in a pickup truck. And uh, there's now this kind of sentiment of, uh, hey, uh, don't don't drive uh, at Toyota because it's for, uh, you know, hippies. Mm. And Toyota is like, you know, Toyota makes trucks. Why are they all of a sudden... uh, uh, being affected so much by these videos. And the thing that you actually are right about is we tend to try in those situations to exert control, but we don't recognize that there is an economic cost to control. And that the more there's videos out there, the more there's, we're living in an age of narratives, the more control, ironically, becomes ineffective. Hmm. Um, so we really need to uh, ask ourselves, is, is this a problem that exerting more control is going to solve? Or is this a problem where inclusion is going to solve the issue that we need to allow people to be heard, demanding to be heard? And wherever you are on a debate, I think we need to really um, amplify these voices, uh, especially these younger voices who uh, are so wanting to be heard and so wanting to have an impact on the world in a positive way. Talk about it because in the book you do you differentiate between control and power, and um, and I think you do it in a in a, a very important way. What what would you say is the difference between uh, because you might need to relinquish power, I guess, to to gain more control. Right. You look at it even on on, on the most uh, on the international stage. Um, and we are increasingly uh, deciding to go at it alone. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, control uh, the stage that way. The problem with that is that that's going to be really costly. Uh, from, a, from a purely pragmatic way, that's going to be very costly to try to uh, either police the world or uh, go at it alone if we have a conflict with another country. As opposed to an approach of uh, being much more pragmatic and therefore collaborative and inclusive of partners and knowing that in this era, we just can't go at it alone. 
Um, and I think what applies on a national stage applies in a family. Um, how do you? W- w- one of my favorite stories uh, I've, 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 I've seen, um, I, I do a lot of work with military families. Um, and I was visiting this family, and uh, they're, uh, they had four, ch- four children, and, and they're all, uh, the first two children were kind of the kids that you'd expect to see in uh, uh, a military family. And the youngest, uh, this, this kid, Patrick, was just different in, in a wonderful way. You know, just was more artistic and, and more. And you think that in a military family, you know, with, with, with a dad who's a general, they'd, they'd kind of scold him or uh, yeah. try to get him to, to, to fit into the square. And he said they celebrated it. And they're all like, wow, Patrick does such wonderful, uh, uh, has such wonderful views or does such wonderful things. And that level of embracing of that difference uh, made him such a healthy family and such a happier family than instead trying to control his behavior and, and, and uh, have him fit into a mold. And I think mm-hmm. that we can apply that to families and to businesses alike. Absolutely. We're speaking with Ori Brofman, who is the author of the book Radical Inclusion, What the, what the Post-9-11 World Should Have Taught Us About Leadership. Uh, Ori is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. He specializes in organizational culture, employee engagement, leadership, and emerging technologies. Ori, when I, when I look at this um, and, and your points of we need to listen more, amplify, and, you know, and then include other uh, ideas into the conversation – how what do you suggest we do to actually make the the leap to uh, i guess put down our egos put down our historic arguments and our fears that you know if we open up our minds that it might harm us what what are some things we can tangibly actually do to 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 really listen and be influenced by others um one of the first things about listening is that we need to remember that listening is not just about closing uh, closing our mi- our uh, mouth yeah. and opening our ears. It's also a systemic thing. So uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I was uh, in uh, so I'm I'm vegan. I started a vegan nonprofit when I was in college, and uh, through my work my work with the military, I ended up in uh, Kansas, in Baldwin, Kansas, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, hmm. in a hunting lodge. <laughs> and there's all these animal heads around me, and I'm talking to this guy in the military who uh, talks to me about bow hunting. And I'm doing, just trying to understand uh, how, he, uh, how he views life. And in, in, in the middle of the conversation, says, he says, you know, you Berkeley guys aren't that bad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I guess thanks. Thank and you. It, and, <laughs> and I recognize that when you put politics aside for a moment and you look at values, our values as Americans are oftentimes very much the same. And if I compared this guy from the Army to a lot of my friends from Berkeley, the values of service, the values of trying to help the world uh, are very similar. So the first thing I would say is, how do we look at values? How do we slow down and, and start looking at values? But then we also look at very pragmatic things that leaders uh, can do in order to create a sense of belonging. Um, how do we really make things matter? How do we translate that to uh, the people around us and see that their efforts actually are having an effect? How do we give them memories? Um, 
it's it's these small uh, changes that uh, get people to feel that they really belong. And it's also from us, from a philosophical perspective, to recognize that we need each other in order to um, have and in order to be really effective. Yeah. What would you suggest, Ori, to uh, a father or a mother that is they're raising their kids and they really want to create leaders for the future, but also radically inclusive leaders? Um, what, what would you suggest we do and teach our kids that would, you think, make a big difference down the road? So we were uh, writing an uh, article that's coming out today, actually. Um, and I think that this next generation, we haven't named this next generation yet, the, the 12 to 14-year-olds. I think what we're seeing that is very inspiring is that uh, this is a, a generation of inclusion, that they're really embracing inclusion in a, in a wonderful way. And what we can do is we can amplify the behavior that we really like or the thoughts that we really appreciate. And if we just think about it from a perspective of amplification of the good, boy, we can get to a lot of conflict that way. And mm. boy, can we actually uh, make people feel that they're important. It's a great—it's just a great word, too. Amplification of the good. Um, well, Ori, we appreciate you and uh, your great work. This is—I uh, think it's its long needed. We I think we all feel stress in our society because we don't necessarily sense this radical inclusion. We sense— uh, you know this need to control this this almost exclusion of one another, and I think it's I think it stresses us all out. So we do appreciate your insight. Again, Ori Brofman, you can find out more on his website, orybrofman.com. Go check out the book Radical Inclusion: What the Post 9/11 World Should Have Taught Us About Leadership. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, isn't it interesting that uh, leadership experts, as they're studying leadership, they're, they're now talking about the need for radical inclusion. We need more and more ideas. We need to allow more people in on the conversation, maybe draw bigger circles so that we can we can kind of all fit in this together. Um, I, I've been uh, seeing this same kind of movement going on where I always I always I don't know what I if it's a joke, but I'm always saying, you know, we're one we're one disaster away from a, a very big problem. We're one disaster away from totally needing each other. Right. And we see that when we have a kind of a local tragedy or. Uh, even when you just see someone in your neighborhood that's uh, been diagnosed with cancer, people gather around and, and they take care of it. In an address um, at the Vatican recently, Pope Francis spoke out strongly against what he called the terrorism of gossip. And gossip to me is the opposite of that coming together, that that uh, that you know belonging sense that we feel when we are together uh, fighting for the same cause. Gossip, I think, is something that actually tears us away from that. And so one of the things I wanted to focus on in our Coach's Corner today is talking about how we can we can really learn to love our neighbor, 
lose some of those little habits, the techniques we have of pushing our neighbors away, and one of those would be to to kind of lose the gossip. Let's let's set a goal, all of us, following the you know the admonition of Pope Francis about the the gossip, the terrorism of gossip, and learn to control our tongues. Uh, maybe what we could do is just simply, especially with our own kids, our own family, say that we we're going to do whatever we can. To, uh, to eliminate gossip from our house. We won't talk about other people in negative light. We instead will, as our last guest taught us, amplify, uh, amplify the positive, amplify the things that we see that are good out in the world. And maybe part of what we could do is try to actually just start to have conversations around the dinner table, conversations around home about the positive things that we saw. What were the good things we saw people do today? And ask, ask our kids to share those examples. In fact, more importantly, ask them to be those examples. Wouldn't it be interesting if we were all would go home every day and talk with our spouse and our kids about the good things that happened today and the people that influenced your life for good today? I wonder, I wonder if your name would be mentioned by the people around you. Would, would your acts today be so impactful that you would make their list of people that that made a difference, of people that really, truly um, have have helped. So that's one idea. Another idea is we, we can learn to humanize the people around us also. We don't have to demonize everybody. Everybody doesn't have to be the spawn of darkness, slowly trying to destroy your life. Sometimes people just drive slow. Sometimes they just cut in front of you. Sometimes people just... You know, they're humans. And if we could actually start to see people more as humans, and one way to do this um, is just, you know, think about why you would do a similar thing. Well, I would never pull in front of somebody. I always check my mirror. Yeah, except for that time you didn't, right? And then you did pull in front of someone. And so if I followed you long enough, I call it the Ken Starr defense. Remember, Ken Starr was investigating. the uh, the white water and all of the President Clinton, you know, stuff. And uh, as he was investigating, if you know, if I put millions and millions of dollars behind an investigation team to follow you for a year, what would we find? And I'm going to bet we'd find some problems. You know, you're kind of a bad neighbor. Sometimes you drive on their sprinkler accidentally as you're pulling your car out backwards. Be careful to, to uh, demonize somebody. And the only reason we do it is because it's easy. But the minute we are demonizing everybody around us, we, we really are tightening in the circle, and it's going to cause and create even more problems for us. Another um, idea is to literally lift your neighbor like you lift yourself. We're really good at writing great stories about how we live, how we work, how blessed we are, how gifted, how we've touched the hand of God kind of thing that— Sure, our talents are incredible. We're really good at that. And then we kind of lower everyone else's story. One of the things we might want to start doing is lifting stories. Build better stories about other people. Hold up what they do really well. Share more stories about the good of others. And and literally help them write a better story. You might even know people that are really they're they're very adept and skilled at at not telling very good stories about themselves. And they need more help. They need, they need to know how to do it. They need better examples of better stories. So nothing is more powerful than when you're talking to somebody and you highlight what's great about them. Sometimes they look at you like, are you seriously being this positive about me? 
<laughs> they can't believe it. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's not easy, but build those stories up. There's nothing better, I think, than hearing something positive about you from somebody that heard it from someone else. You know? That means it's getting out there. People think you're great. So be loyal to those people that aren't around you and be positive and, and lift them up. And, uh, and I think if we do that, we, we end up lifting everybody up. One other little tool I would just suggest uh, to hopefully create a, a more lifting neighbor kind of relationship is eliminate the middleman. Quit taking your grievances to someone else. Let's start going directly to the person. And it might simply be our fear that we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it without causing a scene. We don't know how they will respond. But instead of being more passive-aggressive, why don't we just be a neighbor? Instead of gossiping to air our grievances, why don't we just go talk to the person and find out what's going on? And uh, don't even just get mean about it. I know people that set up garbage cans in front of their house because they don't want anyone to park in front of their house. And, okay, fine, fine. But come on, let's just talk about it. Let's just talk. It's, it's, it's an old thing we used to do before all this technology came around. We used to just kind of talk to each other. And I know it, it's hard. It's not easy. But it's just what's right. That's what we do to be a healthy adult. We talk. Anyway, just a few simple, simple solutions to uh, lift one another and be a better neighbor and create, hopefully, a better, a better culture and a better life for all of us. Up next, we're going to be talking about why teens are more entrepreneurial than their parents. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Whitney Johnson is an investor, a speaker, and a published author. She's the founder and managing director of Springboard Fund and co-founder of Rose Park Advisors, along with Clayton Christensen, who's the Harvard professor. Uh, Whitney Johnson talks about why teens and young people are more entrepreneurial than their parents. I interviewed her a a little while ago, and I, I wanted to revisit a part of the interview. I began the interview talking about my kids and how they took it upon themselves to learn skills, and now they're making some real money interesting about that is we're seeing this more and more. I had a similar experience with my daughter who, 14-year-old daughter who decided that she wanted to go to Korea this summer with one of her friend's families. And so we said, okay, that's fantastic. You can go, but you've got to earn the money. Yeah. So, you know, in her situation, she wasn't old enough to go out to get a traditional job. So she started baking bread and baking cinnamon rolls and selling it to our neighbors. And lo and behold, she's now earned the $3,000 that she needs to go to Korea. So, yeah, it's interesting. And so one of the things that was fascinating for us is we looked at her. We thought, okay, is she the exception or is she the rule? And we did this very quick poll on Facebook. Facebook's good for that kind of thing and said, to our friends, okay, so how did you when you were in high school, and how do your kids make money? And one of the things that we found is that for our peers, and so people who are Gen Xers and Boomers, about 60% of them had very traditional teen jobs, you know, the flipping burgers, yeah. the waiting tables, which is what I did. I worked at a burger pick 
pit in San Jose, California. Um, but then when I asked what their children did, we found that only 12% of them had these really traditional jobs. And so we started, my husband and I both started looking at this and saying, okay, what's going on here? Why is this different? And what does this mean for the future? And so that was the question that we set out to answer in, in this piece that we wrote for Harvard Business Review. And what did you come up with? It's is it what's different about it? I mean, I guess I guess kids used to kind of be a little uh, creative and entrepreneurial. They'd go get the old lemonade stand going or whatever. They'd have a paper route. But this is more exactly. this is more independent, like driven. It absolutely is. I think there there's a confluence of factors happening. I think one is just the media. I mean, we if you think about shows like Shark Tank. Yeah. Shows like that were not on when we're children, and it's featuring these young entrepreneurs, these really feel-good stories of these kids chasing their dreams and having success. And you can see that see that playing out in a Gallup poll that came out that eight out of ten kids want to be their own boss, and four out of ten want to start their own business. I think another thing that's happening is that while there are some children that are or teenagers that are more entrepreneurial. There are some that aren't. And so one of the things that we saw with our daughter is that there was this huge groundswell of support from our neighbors. I mean, they could have gone to the store and bought bread. It would certainly have been less expensive than $5 or low for even cinnamon rolls. But when they saw that she was willing to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to bake bread on a Saturday, they were more than happy to support her in buying this bread so that she could go and chase her own dreams. Mm. Uh, I think another thing that's happening is that technology. I mean, it's so much easier to start a business than it was when we were young. I mean, one example that I I came up with, and there's lots of them, this 17-year-old teenager, Nick D'Alessio, in Australia, he's an app developer, and he was able to develop this app that summarizes the news. He sold it to Yahoo for $30 million. Now, I know that's an outlier, but if you think about it, for a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, they don't need to go into the office to start a business. Right. Start it right in their own home. Um, And then I think the fourth thing I would say is college. It's so competitive to get into college. And so one of the things kids are doing is, how do I differentiate myself? And again, like you said at the beginning, um, you know, you may have kids that are like, okay, I want to do a paper route. But now it's like you need to not only have a paper route, but you need to be the person who's running the paper route. And it's not enough to contribute to the school newspaper. Maybe you should just start a newspaper online and see if you can make money off of it. And so kids are really looking at ways to make themselves much more competitive um, in terms of getting into college. It's an so, entire paradigm shift, isn't it? That, yes, that absolutely. It's, it, and it's more individualistic. It's, it's, it's like I don't necessarily need to go to college. We used to have the hoops we had to dr- jump through and get the MBA before we could ever be a business success, we believed. And then it seems like right. people – yeah, even Bill Gates kind of blew that up. You don't have to finish school. Uh, you don't have to finish your MBA program or whatever at Harvard. But in the end, it's like the kids like, well, I can design an app right now, and That's right. and they're already That's trying right. it. Right. That's right. And I think you, yeah, and you're absolutely. I mean, to your point about going to college, there is definitely an increase. There's a shift that's happening in the education world of people saying. 
you know, do we really want to measure, measure college credits? Shouldn't we just be measuring competencies? Shouldn't we just see what people can do? And do they need to go to college to be able to do that? And I think that's, that's still in the offing. That's not happening yet. Mm-hmm. It certainly hasn't become mainstream. But I think that's the natural extension or consequence of what we're seeing now as our, as our kids are becoming much more entrepreneurial. Oh, it's, it's a powerful uh, shift. I, I wonder, as, as a parent, if um, how, how you instill that, maybe these are kind of the early adopters, like your child, my child. Some of these are the ones that just kind of naturally do it or they, they might have a natural skill set that leads to it or a t- you know just a love to control and I don't know what it is. But it, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, what I'm if you're the parent that – what if your kid doesn't yeah. do it? You know, And I'm thinking, oh, man, are these kids getting behind if they don't, if they don't well, become I, a little more independent? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a combination of, you know, as we said, you need to get into college. I think having a tough economy has certainly made made a difference. I think a lot of these kids have grown up seeing their parents being out of work or not having jobs. And so they're, you know, if you say to your child, it's a lot easier to say to your child, I don't have $3,000 for you to go to Korea mm-hmm. than it is to say, well, I do have $3,000, but I'm not going to give it to you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a little bit that happens there. Um, what I would say from a, as a parent, um, if if our kids aren't as entrepreneurial, I think we need to be willing to let them fail and sort of see the consequences of, okay, if I don't work hard, I'm not going to get what I want mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. Um, and then, of course, there are going to be some children like your daughter who just were motivated, and then they're going to they're going to have an advantage. So we try to give our kids who may not be as motivated opportunities where they can fail enough so that they figure out, oh, maybe I do need to be motivated and and think about approaching the workplace, approaching school in a more innovative fashion. That was uh, Whitney uh, Whitney Johnson. And why are teens more entrepreneurial than their parents? Pretty cool insights. Uh, But here's the deal. As we wrap up this hour, it's a very, very special time on the show, uh, and so we wanted to take the last few minutes. It's a birthday day. It's a happy birthday to Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Do I need to hold these for the entire yes. show? Okay. So Terry went out. <laughs> so amazing. Terry spent the morning uh, Terry, wow. blowing up balloons, uh, getting a no, cake. I did not. Setting up a birthday party. This is something HR does. They bring balloons around. When they brought them to my desk, I yeah. sat and watched and waited. And then when they placed them at the desk, I popped every balloon and put it in the garbage so no one would know they happened. Wow. No one would know they existed. Harsh. It was a bit extreme. It's a lot harsh. But it kept everyone from knowing when it was my birthday, and I didn't so, have to deal I mean, with that. Don't your kids like to play with balloons? Yeah, but I'm talking about work. Oh, okay. I want to have work, not have like people going, hey, happy birthday. When we know. have a We have a great tradition in my family called the spanking machine. Ah, and we'd like you. We're gonna have everyone on the team kind of line up, and uh, you're gonna go through the spanking machine. Ouch! There, that was Terry. Oh, there's Terry again. Terry, quit it. <laughs> um, congrats, Jeffrey. How how old are you today? Well, I wouldn't want to press the button that many times. Wow, but yeah. thirty five. Thirty five mm-hmm. years, true blue millennial. Ah. Wrong. Do you have any, you know, any great advice for your birthday? For the rest you know, of us? play with your kids. Play with my kids? Yes. You're telling people to play with my kids? Yes. It's nice of you. Not sure that they want want to play with all these people, but play with your kids. That's yes. great advice. Yes. That helps you stay younger. 
Uh, kiss your wife. Kiss your wife. Well, don't kiss Matt's wife. Don't kiss my wife. Kiss your own wife. Play with his kids, but don't kiss his wife. <laughs> That's great advice. Happy birthday. Thank you. Do you have anything special planned? Well, the, the one plan that my wife had uh, did not pan out. She was going to take me to a movie that is not playing anywhere here in Utah. <laughs> we found out last night. Bummer. Well, we'll figure something out. Maybe just watch YouTube. He did it, folks. Jeffrey Liam Simpson, 35 years young, and never been kissed, except by his wife, on their wedding. Wrong. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and, and believe strongly in your family that you know, one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family. And there's a lot of pressure to, to how do you make ends meet when, like we heard earlier, it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet. Um, so at some point, we have to we have to really co-parent. We have to learn to, to be together as parents um, on our family issues. I see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up. And we fight about things, we fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything, right? So at some point, we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that, uh, that, that might help as we, as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if, if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together – um, as a as a partnership, one of my I, I mean, a lot of times we would just blame one partner. You know, he's not helping out, she's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it's, it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes, because just symbolically, I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, the the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. Okay, so if a system is really one sided then um, it, there may be uh, – the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one-sided way. And an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of, of quality – for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you, or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something. Um, is it just, have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, and so, but think about that because almost inevitably when I see somebody who has nobody helping around the house, many times I see that same person being a perfectionist. And nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't 
they they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it, um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner to not be as involved in the parenting? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is different now than how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's she might, you know, have the baby on her hip more. So she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most you know, energy, anxiety, frustration, issue about something, really, I think, should be the owner of it. If, if, if you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then you probably ought to own it so that you can, you know, go manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it and um, and you, you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than, than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions. Some things we ought to be discussing is what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you do you want to play? Do you do you want to just we I think a lot of us just default to you know typical kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff, mom does the inside stuff. But I mean you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what do we what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10. Rank how well you're both doing as the the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co-parenting skills. If if we want to be better co-parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh, in a way that um, we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need to. We don't need more excuses. We don't need more uh, reasons to blame somebody. What we need is. We need to put the co in it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's important as a, as a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided I'm going to put together some time savers, ways that you as a couple could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. You go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it because 
What I have now come to understand is maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit Let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple and maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back and, but let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk and we use the time together throughout the day. Sure. It might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of a day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps um, my wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. She, we now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have, uh, you know, we can access each other's Amazon wish list if we want. There's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So use the apps that you've got out there and, and, and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times, I call them. Transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment. And there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Um, after dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or 10 more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, uh, that's a transition time going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great, great way to connect with each other. So we're, we're doing that. But it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing. And it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to stop. It's not just about saying no to everyone else. We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. 
And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, and that, so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just say no to everything else. At some point, you also have to say yes to the marriage. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life. Whether it be as a child, a senior citizen, or even a middle-aged adult, everyone feels lonely at some point or another. For some of us, it uh, may only be a temporary blip before we make new friends. But for other people, it may be as serious as social isolation and and just disconnection from the world. Whatever its form, loneliness is is very unhealthy, and both for us mentally and physically. And today, we're honored to have Julianne Holt-Lundstedt. She is a professor here at uh, Brigham Young University and is is actually now getting worldwide acclaim for her research on the dangers of loneliness. And uh, Julianne, we're so honored to have you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. This is such a big deal that uh, the the UK has actually appointed a, a new minister uh, prime or a new minister to head up loneliness, to be over loneliness. Yeah, yeah. And so I this came as a result of the mounting evidence uh, around not only the significant impact that it can have on our risk for premature mortality, uh, as well as, as you mentioned, uh, physical health, mental health, our, our overall well-being, uh, but there's also this increasing prevalence. And not only in the UK, but we see similar trends here in the US as well. Talk to us about um, the the actual impact. What so loneliness, what does it do to us uh, physiologically? How does it actually impact our health? Sure. Um, well, I can uh, start by, by, in essence, giving you a little bit of background in terms of how this might influence, and then I'll, I'll yeah. let you know what we know in terms of evidence. Uh, so in essence, it, it's we're often considered social creatures, yeah, right? right. And, and being socially connected is widely thought of as a fundamental human need. And uh, so, of course, uh, neuroscience evidence uh, uh, to some degree supports this in that uh, we are um, biologically wired, so to speak, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, to be connected. And that, for instance, um, you know, as social species. It's adaptive to uh, be around others, right? There's safety in numbers. Yeah, right. And uh, when we are faced with a threat, um, when we are alone, it um, requires more metabolic resources in our brain uh, uh, to face and, and that challenge, that challenge relative, threat. Yeah. relative to when you're with others and particularly trusted others. Um, oh, interesting. There's it's not also, enough to be with others. You have to be with people you trust to exactly. fully magnify the benefit. Exactly. There's also evidence that um, that the neural mechanisms that uh, um, are associated with physical pain 
share similar neural mechanisms with social pain. Um, Interesting. And so, of course, uh, our, our, our brain helps coordinate the kinds of uh, processes in our bodies that help us deal with threat that we can potentially put our bodies in a state of chronic threat vigilance, uh, which can put a load on on our bodies that can uh, have wear and tear over time uh, that can lead to increased risk. Hmm. So as far as the actual evidence of the degree of this risk, uh, so my colleagues and I, we examined all of the data linking the extent to which people are socially connected and uh, their risk for premature mortality. And we looked at data all over the world. So this is not just from BYU or even the U.S. Um, And what we found is that those who are more socially connected um, were associated with significantly reduced risk for premature mortality. But the you know, we know that most people don't recognize this, right? Yeah, and right. so one of the things that we wanted to do was to benchmark this relative to other kinds of things that we take very seriously for our health. Because we're constantly hearing on the news the latest thing that's, yeah. you know, good or bad for us. And we need to know just how seriously to take this. And so in benchmarking this, what we found was that, uh, in essence, uh, lacking social connections was uh, equivalent to the risk of smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. Uh, But it also exceeded many of the other factors that we take seriously, including things like obesity, um, physical inactivity, uh, as well as uh, air pollution. So it's just as harmful as obesity – it's Air actually pollution. more – it carries Loneliness. a greater risk now, than, you, than, obe- than obesity. Because okay. you keep calling it social connectivity. Is it – so I have to be socially connected, I guess, and engaged because we're using terms of connectivity and loneliness. Right. And so what's the difference? Yeah. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, we – we connect to others socially in a variety of ways. Yeah. So, of course, the research has also uh, studied this in a variety of ways. Uh, and so this can include uh, things such as uh, more what would be referred to as like structural ways. Yeah. Um, so our size of our social network, um, whether we're married or not, whether we live alone or not. But there's also the functions that our relationships serve. Uh, so whether that's actual support or um, the perceived availability of a support or even perceived loneliness. Uh, but then there's also the quality of our relationships. Right. Um, and to the extent to which we are satisfied or there's conflict or strain in our, our relationship. And importantly, all of these have been significantly linked to uh to either protection on the positive side right. or or risk on the negative side. And so loneliness is um, one indicator of a lack of social connection. And in fact, if we go back to that idea of uh, social connection as a, a biological need, uh, uh, there have been others that have argued that in essence, loneliness is like a biological motive much like hunger or thirst huh. uh, and that it bio, and that it motivates us to reconnect uh, and so we can think of social connection as the goal 
and loneliness as the symptom Interesting, and yeah. that motive to to reconnect. The indicator. And it's um, – I, I guess the interesting thing we're finding out too is um, – because you, you could have a lot of people around you and be lonely. Oh, absolutely. Or yeah. you could – but there's just – you're saying there's just inherent benefits um, to having other people around you even if you're not as profoundly connected simply because I guess they'll watch your health – They'll pay more attention if something's going on. They'll get you to a doctor. Right. Absolutely. And so I, I appreciate you bringing this up because a lot of people use the term social isolation and loneliness interchangeably. Yeah. And so just to be clear, isolation refers to – is thought of as being objective uh, in the sense that it refers to the either numbers of relationships or frequency of contact with others – Whereas loneliness is this subjective perception yeah. uh, that uh, is uh, often described as either the perception of feeling alone or that discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's actual level of connection. So indeed, you can be uh, still around others yeah. and still feel lonely. And conversely, you can um, – be, be alone isolated, yeah. uh, and, and you know, maybe take comfort in, or, or enjoy your solitude. Right. Um, but interestingly, uh, I did another one of these analyses where we looked at uh, data from over 3.4 million uh, people. Wow. Great um, And we, we directly looked at loneliness, isolation, and living alone. And importantly, they all significantly predicted risk for premature mortality. Interesting. And and equivalently so. Uh and and so uh we need to recognize that although these are very different, they all are important. And so uh in essence the way we might address it might be very different also. And the yeah. way in which they might influence risk uh may differ as well. So for instance, that perception of loneliness may be associated more with uh, physiological responses uh, associated with kind of this heightened threat or a state of stress or um, within the body, whereas living alone uh, may be related to not having someone around to uh, remind you to take your medications right. or to get sleep yeah. or to go see a doctor when you need it. Or, um, for instance, in older adults, uh, Falls are a significant oh, yeah. risk, so having someone to help grab that there. on you know on a high shelf yeah. <laughs> uh, can can help reduce those kinds of risks so so they all can uh, influence our our health. Uh, but perhaps maybe in different ways. You bet. We're again speaking with Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt. She is a professor of psychology and neuroscience right here at Brigham Young University. Her research is focused on the long-term health effects of social connection. She also has received the George A. Miller Award from the American Psychological Association uh, and also the Mary Lou Felton Young Award, uh, Scholar Award. She's um, also, uh, by the way, now working with that Minister of Loneliness in the UK on on her team. Uh, I'm I'm a member of the technical working group now. Yes. I mean, how amazing is that? Do you sense, by the way, are we getting are we getting more and more people that are uh, socially isolated and lonely? Is is it is it increasing or are we are we now that we have this knowledge are we getting better at taking care of it? 
Right. Um, so first of all, it's 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 somewhat difficult to get precise estimates just because this isn't something that is routinely collected. Yeah. And that's one of the efforts that the UK is going to be doing through their National Office of Statistics is getting um, better uh, indicators population wide. Uh, and so for the U.S., uh, we have some evidence, although um, as far as perceptions of loneliness, uh, it depends on how the question's asked. So some uh, w- will give a, a, a f- uh, prevalence rate where it's based on, do you feel lonely most of the time? Mm. Or someone else will ask, how frequently do you? Yeah. And so they're asked a little different. However, there is other data that really does suggest that this is uh, something that is a growing issue. Okay. So if we look at uh, census data, which is relatively objective, right. uh, it it indicates that we now have more people living alone than ever, um, at least in terms of census data yeah. and in terms of the data they've been collecting. Um, we have fewer people getting married, fewer people having children. Um, and the uh, household sizes are shrinking. Now, of course, we need to recognize these are relatively crude measures because just because you're not married or living alone doesn't mean you right. don't have a, uh, a social network. But keep in mind that despite these being crude indicators, they're also very robust predictors of risk. Interesting, yeah. Because they are... They provide a safety net for us, right? Uh, and uh, and of course, again, just because you are married um, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't um, experience distress. So that safety net may be frayed. Yeah, right. Um, but these are uh, important indicators. Uh, but there's also other indicators uh, that come from nationally representative samples. So, for instance, the Pew Research Center uh, has some data that suggests that uh, since the mid in the 1980s, social network sizes have decreased. Hmm. We also have evidence that people are less likely to um, participate in religion, participate right. in other, other kinds of social groups, um, and that the majority of Americans no longer participate in social groups. Which is, meanwhile, our social media is on the rise, and we're getting more and more friends, yet we are so less social. Isn't that yes. interesting? Yes. And so that is probably, I'd say, the biggest challenge right now is to really recognize and understand the full implications of that. Because keep in mind the data that I mentioned earlier on mortality, this data um, – assessed the extent to which people were socially connected and then followed them over years, most often decades. Wow. So most of this data was collected prior to when this was uh, widely used. And if we think about, um, some have indicated that you know 2012 was the point in time when uh, the majority of Americans had smartphones. Right. That's only within the last now six years. We have no idea the long-term health implications of this because uh, it has dramatically changed the way in which we are interacting socially. Uh, And there is some evidence to suggest that it is not – making us more socially connected, right. and if anything, um, may be associated with some some detrimental effects. What advice do you give us? Um, who who should we be paying attention to? Seems like the elderly. Um, but what advice do you give us as parents, as families, as as people in the community that want 
to make a difference so that we don't have people suffering that don't, I guess, choose to be suffering. Yeah. So certainly older adults have received a a large um, amount of attention on this issue because this does affect a, a significant portion of older adults. However, it's important to recognize that this can affect anyone Anyone. at any age. And indeed, um, my evidence suggests that there's actually a stronger effect among those under 65 relative to those who are over 65. Really? There's also some evidence to suggest that among young adults and adolescents that this um, is – there's been evidence of – large spikes in this um, in recent times. Uh, And so this is something we need to pay attention to. But one thing I uh, also argue is that uh, we can all benefit from social connection. Absolutely. And so uh, while, of course, we want to help those that are, um, you know, profoundly lonely, uh, that we can all benefit from this and that if we have this uh, um, growth model rather than pointing to those who um, might have a problem and need to be right, fixed, right. Um, that that we can all uh, um, benefit from social I love connection. that idea. And you can – I mean just going to visit – so it actually – like visiting anybody really benefits everybody. Connecting, being paying attention, listening to others, uh, it really is for everyone's good. Right. And if you think about it, our evidence suggests that this is just as if not more important as things like uh, nutrition and physical activity. And so every one of us, you know, if we take the analogy of physical activity, right, um, we know we need to be physically active. Maybe we're not always as active as we should be, but it's something that we recognize. And we may uh, need to make time in our busy schedules to be uh, physically active. Well, we also need to make time in our busy schedules to be socially active. And just as we have little devices that, um, you know, let us know when we've been sitting too long and that we need to get up and move, um, you know, maybe we can Find ways to nudge ourselves, you know, to remind us when it's been too long since we've called our mom or yeah. oh, sure. <laughs> um, or have gotten together with friends, uh, that we all need to uh, take this seriously for our own health and uh, and reach out to others and foster those those close relationships. I, I It really is. And I'm sure you feel like, you know, divinely led to this in a way because it's this is like this is essential. You found an essential fact. This is one of the essential facts of life. And yet, it's no, notice we don't think of it like we do our our nutrition or our exercise. We make such a big deal about those, but we don't make as big of a deal, it doesn't seem like, around social connectivity. Yeah. And, you know, uh, like you said, with nutrition, you know, just as we know that it's we need to take into account both how much we eat, yeah. but the quality. Quality of the food. Uh, and similarly with our relationships, we need to look, take into account, you know, not only how many relationships we yeah. have, um, but the quality of those relationships. And I think that really comes back to uh, that uh, those concerns about social media, because uh, while someone might have uh, – 
you know, hundreds or thousands of followers. Um, right. To what extent are those deep, meaningful relationships people that you can count on in the time so of need? True. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Julianne Holt Lundstedt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. Unbelievable lesson, I think, for all of us. In fact, right now, everybody be thinking, who who do you know we need to connect with? Who do we? And by the way, and how is it benefiting you to be connected in a, a deeper, more profound way and more often? Dr. Julianne Holt Lundstedt, again, is a professor of psychology and neuroscience right here at Brigham Young University, really tearing up the world with uh, her battle on loneliness. We'll continue the journey, folks. A little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, loneliness, it'll kill you. Did you know that uh, it, it is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day if you feel loneliness? And uh, and, and and this disconnection from society, It's it really now needs to be taken just as seriously as obesity, as your nutrition, as your, your health regimen. And so just do a little evaluation on yourself. I, I actually am a little worried because I love being alone. And I could see that I could create a habit in my life of, you know, pushing people away to the point that if my spouse passed away or I my kids moved away, I'd be okay being lonely for a while or, you know, being alone for a while, socially isolated for a while. But but then you might actually start missing it and then automatically start uh, suffering the the costs of, of that. One of the reasons why it's good to just have people around is simply because you're more likely to get the health care you need. You're more likely to go get uh, the services you need because someone's there to notice that you're struggling with your eyesight or your hearing or other things. I mean, we need to start watching out for it. So do a little assessment on yourself, on the people around you. Do we sense some people are lonely? And, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about extroversion or introversion. And honestly, it, it still doesn't matter. Even if you enjoy being alone, which I do as, a, as more of a, a, you know, an ambivert, a, an extrovert and an, and an introvert, we still need to have people around us and we still totally need to be making sure that we, um, that we are connecting with others. And if we feel lonely and, and are getting depressed, it's important to, to say something. We hear a lot about the Meals on Wheels program where, you know, communities are doing whatever they can to make sure that uh, those that are um, socially isolated or alone, seniors, are able to get the meals that they need. But if you if you are involved in those programs, you hear a lot that it's not the meal that matters half as much as the visit from the person that's bringing the meal. And that, again, validates the research. People matter. They totally matter and your relationships matter. So please do what you can now when you're younger. Do what you can now when you're a little healthier to not only work on your own relationships so you can have the benefits of those going into the future, but also let's make sure that we're, we're looking out for others in need, for seniors, for others that are, are, are possibly more likely to be uh, uh, you know, alone. Also remember that um, if you are single – 
if you uh, and even if you enjoy it, if you're divorced and um, and that's kind of what you've wanted in life. Be careful to also make sure you're growing more than just your social media likes and your, you know, your friends on social media, because social media in the end is not the same power as having a strong social network. It's uh, it now is a health issue, which I think is it's awesome. It really is. It's not just great for my business. It's great, I think, for all of us to to start to recognize the importance of balancing the social side. We know that we had to grow physically and emotionally. We knew we had to get our mental health down. But uh, now we also need to grow socially and make sure we're good at it, make sure we're knowing how to, to be the best person we can be and start giving back to those around us. It's good for your health. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about why are teens more entrepreneurial than their parents. We'll be revisiting an interview with Whitney Johnson straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time, uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And Uh, The researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier, it's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, If all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other, whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And Because and, remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it. And in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time 
in their lives and for for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's So careful of your excuses because... Nobody buys them anyway except you. And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simple – it's a time management book – is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? Right. If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday we're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with this, the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example, Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate. And came out where the people are, and you were out there with you were out there, and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a in a conversation. I know it was like a real conversation. It was it was like the first time I think in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like I'm just wondering: Are you sick? Um. Was there? Did you need it's, a ride? It's terminal. Were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Normally you don't 
talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for right, but they all said no, so I thought I'd just yeah. keep talking to let them. Me just, let me just tell you, if you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone-cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he... You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars? Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> You're a baby. Um, like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer, are you kidding, a rocker, and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people. Or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsourced. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream makers, I mean, how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art format. Like, I know. What would happen, though, is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream, and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe, and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom. You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> Mental note. Don't sell to robots. That's the Coach's Corner, folks. Fairly basic stuff, eh? We'll be right back. 